the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and life was that light of all mankind, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify that concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not out of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. The the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The word of the Lord. You have a seat, friends. I want you to imagine with me that you're in a particularly difficult season of life and it's just dragging on like it will never end and then something else happens and it's just the straw to break the camel's back. It's the loss of a job or maybe the loss of a loved one or a relationship that falls apart and you cannot process the disappointment anymore. And so in a a fragile place, you go out and have about seven too many. And with your judgment impaired and all of your filters down, you end up going home with someone that you hardly know and doing things that are totally out of character for you, things that you never thought you'd do, and wake up in the middle of the night in the sheets of a stranger in a bed you've never been in, in a house you've never been in, with vomit streaked down your chin and on the floor next to you. And in that sober moment, you come to your senses and just think, I've got to get out of here. And so you're traumatized by what you've done and you peel yourself out of bed and you make your way home in the early hours of the morning smelling like vomit with your head pounding, all kinds of regret churning in your stomach, weighed down by shame. And finally you make it home to your door and you reach into your pocket for your keys and oh no, you don't have your keys. So I want you to hang on to that moment. I want to come back to it, uh, but I want to come back to it with a lot more context. The Word became flesh. We have spent the last month in John chapter 1, and over the course of the month, we've walked the paces of the Creator, who's also the recreator, of glorious promises that are grounded in reality, of the miracle of children reborn into a divine family, and all of that has been steps along the way to this destination. The Word became flesh. That is not just the punchline of John's gripping introduction. It is the hinge that the whole book turns on. His opening has been poetic and abstract. The Word, or the logos in ancient Greek. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But from this verse forward, what was abstract becomes personal. John leaves behind the Logos and begins from this moment forward to refer to Jesus as his gospel goes forward from here. This is the hinge where what was cosmic is grounded in reality and now becomes personal for the remainder of the revelation. So for today, our plan is simple. We're going to make our way through a single verse, word by word, to meet the cosmic made personal in the person of Jesus. 
So I'd love for you to have a, a copy of the scriptures, ideally one that's made of paper, and that just is because of a whole bunch of weird stuff about neural pathways and attention span and everything like that. So if you are in need of a Bible, if you'd raise your hand, um, I, I can see Casey is sprinting to the back. Thank you, Casey, to, to hand those out. Uh, and would love for you to be able to track along with me in John chapter 1 through this one verse. So keep that hand up, see how long that shoulder can burn, and we'll pass out Bibles till we've got one out to you. But I'm going to begin, and we're going to put this bit on the screen with this phrase. The Word became flesh. So as refined as John has been up to this point in describing God's activity, he is now equally blunt in describing his humanity. Ancient Greek has two different words for the one English word flesh. There is soma and sarx. Soma was commonly used as a good and a positive word when referring to the human body as attractive or strong or noble. Sarx was the other end of the spectrum. It was the word used when one was acknowledging that the same body that can be attractive, strong, and noble can also grow weak, get sick, and ultimately decay. So describing God in the flesh, in the flesh John intentionally chooses that second word, sarx. Guys, I think we're out of Bibles. I don't see anyone pass them out anymore. Sorry. We'll restock. And uh, by the way, if you've received a copy of the scriptures and you do not have one, take that home with you. It's our gift to you. Um, and if you didn't get a copy of the Bible today, I'm sorry, I'll make it as easy as possible for you to track along. Let's keep going. All right, so John very intentionally chooses the second word. The word became sarks. He became a body and one with cravings and bowels and bad breath and B.O., he became a body, and not a particularly attractive one, not one that you would see on a magazine cover airbrushed to perfection, but the real kind, the common kind, the sarks kind. In Latin, it's caro, from which we get the English carnal, and the Spanish carne. Hey, there's more copies of the Bible back. Put those hands back up. Carne, as in chili con carne. You're familiar with this term. So you see, John doesn't just say the word became a man or the word became a body. That would have been clear but polite. Instead, he chose the most blunt expression possible. For 13 verses, he has been poetic and delicate. And now all of a sudden, he is talking like a sailor. The God big enough to create a cosmos so wide and deep and expansive that all of our science indicates that we've only ever discovered a tiny little speck of it in one corner. That God became a lump of meat. It's difficult to overstate just how shocking that statement would have been when John first put it on paper. I mean, he's a, a Jew who grew up with a view of God so reverent that they did not even utter his name. And that God, Yahweh, he says, became flesh. Imagine that, being read in the ancient temple with priests in, in long gowns shooting disturbed glances at one another, with a few in the, per, in the pews squirming in discomfort. John's gospel is also unique because he was writing intentionally to both Jews and to Greeks who commonly believed in a spirituality that was all about enlightenment and escape from the body as the ultimate expression of spirituality. And he is making the claim that the apex of spirituality is a God who grounded himself in a body. Now, can you see that being eloquently, eloquently read among the Greek philosophers? Scoffing at such an absurd idea. I thought we were here to consider some weighty new teaching. Who did you say wrote this? 
You see, in these four words, John's managed to alienate the whole Mediterranean world, but he's done it to include the whole Mediterranean world. Just take a look with me at the very next verse. John 1.15 says, John, meaning John the Baptist, not the author. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. It sounds like a riddle, doesn't it? He was before me and after me. Here's what he's saying. The creator has entered my family line. And what John the Baptist said in a riddle and what John the Apostle has said in a poem, Matthew says in a genealogy. Let me give you the opening words of the Gospel of Matthew. This is the catchy intro to the whole of the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. That's just the first two verses. It keeps going on like this for a painfully long time. Matt, get an editor, my man. You've buried the lead. You are losing us in the opening paragraph. Actually, it's a masterful intro because names are what set the biblical story apart from history's other great religions. It's that when God breaks the silence between creator and creation, he does not begin with an explanation. He begins with the name Adam. And then Eve follows shortly after And then God recreates in the same way he created at first. After the the forbidden fruit disaster, the swell of redemption begins again with the name Abram, and then later Sarai, and then Isaac. Every story that captures our attention has to have names. A nameless story is limited in, in the way it can enliven the human heart because it does not get personal enough. Names are the most personal form of speech in the human lexicon. Because names take information and they make it personal and participatory. I've got four pictures that hang on my office wall. Each of those pictures represents a prayer that I want to define my life. This is one of those photos. It's a a photo of Walter McMillan. Walter was held on death row in Alabama for six years. He was released in 1993 when it was discovered that he had been locked away for a crime he did not commit. His lawyer was Brian Stevenson, and his story became the subject of the book and then later the film, Just Mercy. Now, Stevenson is just one of many lawyers combating the crisis that is mass incarceration in the U.S., where currently there are six to ten times more uh, incarcerated individuals than in other industrialized nations. Most of those individuals are black and brown brothers and sisters, and there have been a number of books written on this very important topic. But Just Mercy is set apart from all of the other books in its popularity and the amount of people that have interacted with the material. Why is that? What is it that sets this book apart, this version of the story, from all the others? I think it's that when Brian Stevenson told the story of mass incarceration, it was a story that included stats and facts and figures, but it was a story that was primarily told through names and faces. That when Brian Stevenson tells the story of national injustice, it sounds this way, Henry, Charlie, Herbert, Walter. Now, I do wish that I knew those names for a different set of circumstances, but the reason that Walter's photo hangs on my wall is to remind me that if it's Jesus I'm following, my story will be told the same way through names and faces. Because God tells his story along relational lines. 
And don't get me wrong, God is into righting every wrong. He is into facts and figures and overturning every table of injustice. He is healing the sick and breaking the chains of injustice and opening up the gates of salvation. But when he tells that story, it sounds this way. Joshua, Ruth, Deborah, Esther, Malachi, Jesus... And then when the word became flesh and God lived among us and Jesus kept on telling that story in a rural village, it sounded like this. Mary, Joseph, Simeon, Anna, later Peter, James, Mary Magdalene, Jairus, Bartimaeus. It just keeps going on this way. And if it's Jesus I'm following, then my story will be told that way, not primarily through accomplishments or facts and figures, but through names and faces and stories, because this is how God authors redemption. And that's why the Bible is littered with genealogies. There's 25 of them in the Bible overall, 10 in Genesis alone. Two out of the four Gospels, the biographies of the life of Jesus, open with a long list of names. I chose not to open this sermon with the name of my great, 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 great grandfather because we live at a time in history that does not have a high value on generational lineage. So the odds are you don't care that much about my family tree. But in the first century, family was everything. Perception, status, and opportunity, they all hung on your family name. 2,000 years ago, people treated genealogies more like we treat a LinkedIn page today. They were selectively honest. You know, like you leave out the unflattering details of your employment history, they left out their great uncle who, tried to, who got locked up for trying to lead a political revolt. Jesus' genealogy, the very part of the Gospels that make your eyes glaze over wide into the eyes of the original readers. And that's because no genealogy in history had ever sounded like his. It was jaw-dropping because it included Gentiles, women, and sinners. Gentiles, non-Jewish names, are peppered throughout Matthew's intro, that genealogy. And if you know anything about Jewish history, you know that Gentiles are considered animals more than people. They were considered unclean. And if a Jew was contaminated through incidental contact with a Gentile, then went through a series of cleansing rituals just to enter the temple again. In fact, the temple itself was structured in such a way that a Gentile could not get past the outer courts out of fear that they might contaminate the holy building with their filthy presence. And Jesus puts it on record that the family of God includes Gentiles. And then there's women, to which you would respond, yeah, man, of course there's women. Women give birth to literally everyone. You're going to need them for a family tree. But at the time of this writing, only the patriarch was named. Women were sadly considered second-class citizens, and their names were wiped from written record. No genealogy in history has ever sounded like Jesus' does. But here's the big surprise, sinners. Because anyone trying to manufacture a case for their own divinity would never include the sort of moral disasters that Jesus writes into his own ancestry. Tamar most well-known for disguising herself as a prostitute who seduced her brother, and then out of an incestuous, prostituted pregnancy, Jesus claims his heritage. Then there's Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute in Jericho. She believes, and by a stunning act of grace, she's in the recorded line of the Messiah. There's Ruth, an outsider, who was convinced that she didn't belong until she got a vision of belonging, and now everyone who picks up the story of Jesus will know her story and know that she belongs. And there's Bathsheba, 
Historically, she stands for King David's worst moment, adultery, potentially rape, depending on how you weigh the evidence, and murder. And then on page one, paragraph one of God's arrival, the darkest spot of Israel's favorite hero is listed, and a victim of sexual coercion and abuse is redeemed. Jesus writes incestuous prostitutes, adulterers, and murderers into his own arrival to say, I'm not afraid of your failure. I have not come along to whitewash your worst moments. I've come to graciously redeem every last part of you. Everyone who thinks they're on the outside looking in, I am claiming you as my very own. The conditions that Jesus identifies with in his arrival include family dysfunction, sexual misappropriation, addiction, abuse, anger, anxiety, loneliness, marginalization, oppression, shame, manipulation, unhealed wounds, and quiet desperation, just to name a few. And if you can find yourself somewhere on that list, you can find yourself somewhere in the family of God. Because the family Jesus came from tells us everything we need to know about the family Jesus came for. It's a family that includes everyone, especially those who think they're excluded. Because he is powerful enough to start a new family line right within your current one, but he's also gentle and loving enough not to force that on you. So you can resist him if you want. And many have. He was rejected by the insecure who could not believe that there would possibly be a God this good and this redemptive. And he was rejected by the proud who thought that they could get everything Jesus was offering on their own. They didn't need any help from some peasant rabbi, thank you very much. But he was welcomed by the humble, the tired, the weak, the weary, the hungry, the honest. So if you can find yourself somewhere on that list, you can find yourself in the family of God. Or as John says it, yet to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. So what is exactly does it mean to be born of God? It means a few things. It means that the pain, dysfunction, and suffering that you've been an innocent victim of is promised to be bent by the great storyteller toward redemption. It means everything you've ever done or, or will do can be forgiven. It means that you are filled with the actual spirit of God, that the power and love that dwelt in Jesus will come to dwell in you. It means that you begin the process of being made new and fully alive across every category of your life, and that full life will come alive within you and will never, ever end. And that you live in a redeemed family without anger, betrayal, or disappointment, and a redeemed creation with no more sickness, mourning, death, or pain. So yeah. The ball's totally in your court in terms of how you respond to that, but you are invited. And you're not invited in some general, like, yeah, the door's open, whoever wants to come is welcome, sort of sense. You are personally sought out, intimately named, and invited into this family. The word became flesh, and that means at least this, that the creator entered my family line so that I could enter his. But that's not all it means. And we are just getting started. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling in our English translations is the Greek skinoo, which is most literally translated tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It connects the birth of Jesus back to the Exodus, which is the high point of the Hebrew highlight reel. It is the story that grounds the highest of all the high holidays. And Exodus chapter 40, using the same terminology, says, 
Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. John chapter one then later says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. Do you see the connections here? He's spelling it out as clearly as he possibly can. Glory has come again, only this time in disguise. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod and you'll find it peppered all over the Old Testament. It was a one word summary for the weight, the greatness, the power of God. Moses famously asked God to see his glory, to see his kavod, and that request was denied. He said, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. God was delivering the startling message. No one can see my glory without dropping dead on the spot. One glimpse at my face is too much for the human heart to handle. But he does offer a consolation. Here, Moses, take a peek at my shoulder blade. That's all you can handle. The Old Testament scholar Friedland Steer says this is the apex, the ultimate, the extreme allowed to any theology, any philosophy, and any scholarship, the back of God, provided they really desire to see his face. In The Magician's Nephew, the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis paints a picture of the vision of God left, uh, left us by Moses. And in it, Diggory, the protagonist, catches a glimpse of Aslan, that's Lewis's depiction of Jesus, as the lion Aslan passes in front of him. And he says that part of him wanted to reach out and touch the lion's mane, but another part of him was terrified too. That a part of him wanted Aslan to turn and to lock eyes with him, and another part of him was terrified that he might lock eyes with him. See, in the time of Moses, God is present and powerful. He is obviously for us and among us, but God is not intimate. There are limitations to his knowability. He is the one who parts the Red Sea, but only Moses gets to talk to him. And if your eyes were ever to meet him, it would stop your heart. But still knowing the risk, there's something in you that longs to see his face. As the Old Testament builds and builds like an ocean wave nearing the shore, the name Kavod Yahweh begins to be used again and again as a reference to God's holiness, his otherness, his incomprehensible magnitude. That kind of reverence, that's the Jewish audience on the receiving end of John's gospel. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son. The glory that would have killed Moses on the spot, I've seen it. And you have too. That's what John just said. Jesus. That's who John's talking about. He's saying the kavod, the glory that guided Israel through the desert, across the sea, and into the promised land. The glory that descended on the mountain so thick that if you set a foot on the base of the trailhead, you weren't going to make it. The, the glory that filled the tabernacle like a cloud so that no one, even the priest, couldn't walk in without falling face down. The glory that Moses wanted to see but could not glimpse and keep the breath in his lungs. That glory is not in a cloud or a building. It's in the flesh of a peasant infant that's been born in a rural barn outside of Nazareth. And that means that glory has become personal and knowable. The voice that spoke creation into being, I've heard it. The one that Moses couldn't look at, I've seen him. The unapproachable, I've touched him. The kavod, I know his name. And he knows mine. You see, glory isn't in the tabernacle anymore. It's in his flesh his sarks, it was that scandalous. 
William Barclay says, this is possibly the greatest single verse in the New Testament and certainly the sentence for which John wrote his gospel. Pete Gregg gives it this two-word summary, dirty glory. I like that. The untouchable, indescribable kavod got dirt in the creases of his hands. He rubbed dirt in the eyes of the blind so that they might see. He scribbled in the dirt so that an adulterous woman could know that she is not condemned but forgiven. And he rubbed, scrubbed the dirt from, dirt from between his disciples' toes while they finished up dessert. It wasn't that he just got physically dirty, though. The people that the temple branded as dirty, his hands touched them, too. He, he took the hand of the leper. He kept the company of the prostitute. He shared a table with the tax collector. No one can see the glory of God and live. That's what Moses told them. And in a way, he was right. Because everyone who saw this glory disguised, glory made personal in Jesus, they fell to their knees, utterly undone, surrendered to him. That face... That common face with tired bags under his eyes and a crooked nose and beads of sweat on his forehead, that's the face that Moses said would kill you. That's the glory of God. And a few verses later, John drove the point home. This is verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship to the Father has made him known. That's Jesus. Dirty glory. And he will come again. And when he does, he'll come without a disguise. Glory in plain view for everyone to see. The end of the story is already written, but first, glory became one of us. And all that was so that we might become like him. Participants in the divine nature, according to 2 Peter. The word became flesh, and that also means this, that glory got dirty so that I might become glory. It's good news. But that still isn't all of it. It goes on. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. I've seen glory. And glory looks like grace and truth. Now grace, that is one of the most familiar biblical words, but John actually uses it very sparingly and intentionally. One scholar says that the most direct translation of John's use of glory in his gospel is that which causes joy. He's claiming Jesus came to bring joy. He, he later even said himself, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Now there's two implications there. The first one is this, that life on my terms is something less than life and life to the full. That the way I'm going of my own will is something less than the way that leads to joy. But secondly, that Jesus' aim is not just to restrain me, it's not to control me, it's actually to free me. So there's grace and then there's truth. Truth's a word that's fallen out of fashion these days. And the only truth we can agree on culturally today is that there is no such thing as objective truth. There's only your truth and my truth. But when you or I say truth, we usually mean a, a set of verifiable facts. But there's another definition of truth, an even more ancient definition of truth that goes something like this. If, if I were to shoot an arrow and it flew through the sky in a straight line, exactly where I aimed it, you might say, that is a true arrow. And what you mean is that there isn't this slight, not visible to the naked eye, bend in the wood that causes that arrow to fly in a crooked path once I shoot it. It's true, and, and that definition of truth is directional. So truth can be accurate facts, but it can also be directional. It can also be a straight path. This is true because it goes directly where it promises to go. 
So when John puts grace and truth together, he's saying something like, we've seen his glory and it is a straight path that leads to joy. I climbed the ladder at this company. I put in all the long hours and I lost sleep over my boss's perception of me and I stepped on the head of a coworker or two all, all along the way, all because I thought that when I got this title or started my own practice or had this salary or seat at this table, it would produce joy. Did it? I obsessed over this relationship. I settled for someone who made me feel good because I was so tired of waiting on someone that made me feel great. And I let him treat me okay. I overlooked a few things and even said yes when he dropped to a knee because I thought that a house and a kids and, and stable income is the way that would produce joy. Did it? I lived like there was no tomorrow. I started going out late and dabbling in substances that I used to avoid this time without regrets, all because I thought that a full, free, and more unbound and adventurous life than the one I'd been living for was the way that produced joy. So I held on to my convictions, but I started living more how I wanted. Did it? Is the story you are living a true story? Is it a straight path that produces joy? Because we're all after joy. We all want to get to the same destination, but we're all using different maps to try to get there. And the truth is that most of the maps are not full of grace and truth. John is making the claim, the way that produces joy is not a set of directions or an enlightened state, but a person. It is to know and live in relationship with the Word who became flesh in Jesus. Elsewhere, he's called Emmanuel. A title meaning God with us. But how exactly, do, how exactly is this God with us? Well, the letter to Hebrews uh, unpacks that idea. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is, able to, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. The word became flesh so that he could share our experience, so that he could clothe himself in my pain, feel my shame, stare down my demons, and identify with the incomplete hand I've been dealt. In Jesus, we have a God who can empathize with our weaknesses. But this English term empathize, it's a combination of two ancient Greek words, pasco, which means to suffer, and the prefix with, much like we use the word co in English. So it literally means co-suffer. That's how Jesus deals with our brokenness, with the pain that we have inflicted on others incidentally and the pain that we have been an innocent victim of. He suffers with us. The God big enough that cosmic poetry is the only way to try to describe him is also the God of suffering so humble that shocking bluntness is the only way to try to describe him. Why? Because we've got a God who empathizes. Emmanuel. You see, there's these wires that are crossed in our human brains. We insistently assume that we're closest to God when things are going well. Right? I'm, I'm walking nearest to Jesus when my life is playing out pretty much according to script, when my morals are in place, and when I'm joining his mission in the world. That's when I feel closest to him. But Emmanuel means the opposite. It means that God is nearest us in our weaknesses, not just our strengths. 
You see, our hearts corrupted by sin work like the opposite poles of a magnet that are ever resistant to grace, ever insisting that there's gotta be some system where we get what we deserve at the end of this thing. But Jesus' heart, uncorrupted by sin, works exactly the opposite way. It is like a magnet that pulls to us in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our shame, in our failure, and in our pain. Emmanuel means he's, he's close to us, maybe closest to us, when we feel weakest, most broken, most vulnerable, and most hurting. David Benner says, everything within us tells us that the universe must be organized according to some principle wherein we get what we deserve. But quite unbelievably, God is not simply the projection of our own image on the cosmos. He is different from anything we could have ever imagined. He offers us something we could never deserve, forgiveness of our sins and the embrace of his love. Empathy warms the heart, but empathy doesn't heal. We need more than just empathy. We need a God of power whose power flows through empathy. And that's why it's such good news that Hebrews goes on to say this in in chapter seven. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Completely. This is an ancient term that you will find only one other place in the whole of the Bible, and it's in Luke 13, when Jesus healed a woman who had been disabled for 18 years. That woman was perpetually bent over, unable to straighten up completely until the hands of Jesus laid on her back, and he healed her completely. You see, Emmanuel means that Jesus does not just make a way for you and I to hobble through life and make it to the end in one piece and then we get rest. It means that he's made a way for us to stand up straight, run, jump, dance, and laugh in the face of death. He is able to save completely those who trust him. Jesus is a healer, yes, absolutely, but he is a kind of doctor who has dealt personally with the disease. He's a doctor treating lung cancer who's also had lung cancer, who's felt the effects and donated one of his lungs for a transplant. So you're talking to a doctor with experiential knowledge of exactly what you're going through. Don't you see the profound difference of sitting with that doctor than sitting with one who's just dishing out prescriptions? He is power flowing through empathy. The care, concern, and unhurried presence in that doctor's office. So here is real glory. It's a God powerful enough to end suffering and loving enough to co-suffer. And that's why the cross that Jesus hung on, that's what he called his glory. Jesus chose death. He held back infinite power and took our curse on himself. In the words of 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He was crucified and buried in a tomb. He wore our curse all the way into the ground. Glory does not get dirtier than that. The glory of God was laid in the dirt. But the dirt could not hold him for long. Three days later, Jesus rose. He's empathetic enough to suffer, but he's powerful enough to bring an end to all suffering and restore all who will come to him to the fullest freest kind of life, the way that produces joy. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The word became flesh, and that means life came to die so that I could come alive. There's a story in John chapter 9 where he takes all of this poetry and we see it play out just in one encounter with one man. And it opens with a man who's been blind from birth. A man who's gotten so used to getting around and stumbling in the dark, it's all he's ever known. 
But his problems ran way deeper than blindness because he lived at a time when a terminal ailment or disability was believed to be a curse from God. And so to be blind was also to be expelled from the temple. It was to be cast out of the presence of God and the community of his followers. And that's why when they see this man, Jesus' disciples asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They're saying, who's responsible for the curse that God has laid on him? And of course, that's a tragic misconception of the heart of God and the way he works in the world. And so Jesus corrects the misconception, not by telling them, but by showing them he heals this man. But the way that he heals him is really interesting. Jesus scoops up some dirt and then spits in it, rubs it, makes a little mud, and rubs it on the man's eyes. Then he can see. What on earth is going on there, right? I mean, miracles sound fun, but that one... Well, in the Bible's opening chapter, all the way back at the beginning, God scooped up a pile of dirt got dirt in his hands and he, he breathed life into it. And that's how he created you and me. People are set apart from everything else he created and then he formed us out of the dust and filled us with his breath. So why on earth is Jesus putting his breath in the dirt? That's just God's oldest trick. This is how he creates. He is recreating within this man in the same way he created it first. He's taken a man who has been defined by the fallenness of this world and he's redefining him by the glory of God. Cue the very next scene, the blind man's in the temple, the place he's been banned from his whole life, talking to the priest, the company that he wasn't allowed to be in front of until an hour or so ago, and the priest are saying, tell us who healed you. We know who he claims to be, but he's nothing more than a con man. They actually say this, we know this man is a sinner in John 9. He, meaning the blind man, replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind but now I see. I don't know who he is to the whole world. All I know for sure right now is who he is to me, and that's healer. Jesus catches up with the man after that, and he says to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Lord, I believe. Jesus calls himself Son of Man. The blind man calls him Lord. Jesus calls himself dust so that the blind man could see and in response, this blind man calls him glory. See, we believe in the God who painted the first sunset over the horizon becoming a carnal piece of flesh. We believe in the voice that spoke creation into existence speaking with a rural Middle Eastern accent. We believe in the God who fashions people out of dirt learning to make tables like anyone else and getting splinters in his hands. We believe in the name that is above every name taking a common human name, the name at which one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess being humble enough to be mocked in the mouths of some and lowered on the lips of others. We believe in omnipotent power beyond human comprehension, loving the likes of us enough to hold that power back, take our fate, win our victory, and then offer all of it to us as a free gift. The God who made himself out of dirt as an act of love returned to the dirt as an act of love and then rose from the dirt as an act of love. The word became flesh, dirty glory. His name is Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know him? At his funeral, Eugene Peterson's son said that his dad prayed the same prayer over him every night. And it went like this. God loves you. God is on your side. He is coming after you. He is relentless. 
and now we're back where we started. So let's just say you're in a really tough season of your life and it's just dragging on like it's never gonna end. And then something happens and it's the straw that broke the camel's back and you can't process the disappointment anymore. And so you go out and have about seven too many and you end up in the bed of a stranger doing things you deeply regret, can't even recognize who you are and there's vomit streaked down your chin and it's on the floor next to you. And in a sober moment, you realize where you are and you just get out of that bed and you begin to make your way home. And the whole way there, your head is pounding. There's regret churning in your gut. You're weighed down by shame. And you finally make it to your front door and you reach in your pocket it for your keys and oh no you don't have your keys and they might be back at that stranger's house or they could you could have left them in one of the bars you were in last night you don't know all you know for sure is that you're going to have to ring the doorbell and wake up your roommate or your spouse or your children you're going to have to relive a part of your story you'll spend years trying to forget in front of people that you never wanted to see you like this, but you've got no other options left. So you just lay on that doorbell as long as it takes to wake up the whole house. And then you see the lights come on and you hear steps creaking down the stairs and you hear the deadbolt click and the doorknob turn. And when the door flings open, it's Jesus. What does God do? What does he say? How you answer that question will tell you everything you really believe about God. It doesn't matter what you say you believe. It doesn't matter what story you've recited. How you answer that question is the story that lives in your gut and lives in your bones. It's everything that you really believe about who he is. And if you take Jesus' word for it, I think here's what he'd do. He would hug you. He'd bring you all the way in, vomit and all, and he'd hold you long enough to let your tense body go limp. He'd let you grieve all that you had held tightly inside that whole way home. He would let it release because that's what the father did for the prodigal who finally walked back on his property rehearsing an apology speech. And he'd put on a pot of coffee and he'd make you breakfast because that's what he did to meet Peter on the beach in the morning of his great shame. And then he'd sit in conversation with you and he'd listen to you. He'd listen to you talk about last night or talk about whatever you want to talk about, whatever you're ready to talk about because healing is sometimes fast and sometimes slow and he's in for the journey however you're taking it. And then he'd look at you with eyes of pure grace and he'd say, where does it hurt the most? And then he'd reach out his hand to touch and heal. He would get past all the surface stuff, all the collateral damage to the very source and heal you from the deepest root inside and out because that's what he did for a blind man who he restored to community whose obvious ailment was blindness but whose deeper ailment was that he had been excluded, ostracized, and told that he did not belong. And he would remind you that you're loved that he loved you first before you lived a single day or made a single decision, before you drummed up any reason for your own lovableness and your eyes or anyone else's. And he tells you that he still loves you, still chooses you, still comes after you and will never tire, that you are family. Because that's what Jesus did when he claimed to be the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy, the good shepherd who leaves the 99 in pursuit of the one who is lost and wandering. And if you think Jesus shouldn't do all of that, you're right. He shouldn't. But if you think Jesus wouldn't do all that, you're wrong. He would, and he does. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus, 
regardless of what you've said you believe in the past or what your friends that are around you or your family think you believe, if, if the God I've just described is not the God that you know and walk with day in and day out, then this is the God who wants to welcome you into his family today. This is the God who broke into our world and will never stop trying to break into your world. And this is the God who is reaching out, offering you a free gift, inviting you into the story that he is rewriting right within your story. God loves you, he is on your side, he is coming after you, and he is relentless. So I would just say to you, as a brother, this is too good to hold yourself together. It's too good to put off for another day. It's too good to resist. And if you're here and you do know Jesus, and you do walk in relationship with him, then I would just say this is too good to leave as a story on a page. It's too good to experience primarily through the encounters and experiences of others. And it's too good to reflect on once a year during a particular season. This is who he is. The word became flesh that we might encounter him face to face. Could you meet him again face to face today?